welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here for this uh, special episode. We are pleased to have special guests that we're going to interview, and we're going to let him introduce himself in a minute. But I'm uh, C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest and written a number of books. I've taught philosophy at the undergraduate level. I uh, did that years and years ago. And uh, my most recent book is in the house of Tom Bombadil, and I'm working on a book on totalitarianism right now. But anyway, how about you, Tom? Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, ethics, and philosophy. One of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Glenn. Glenn Sunshine, Senior Fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Ministry Associated Reflections Ministries, a few other things, and a retired history professor. Yeah, I'm still recovering from those years in the academy. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Dr. Joshua Mitchell is with us today. Joshua, uh, please uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I uh, my day job, so to speak, is at Georgetown, where I've been for about 30 years. Uh, I have ranged far and wide, both from my field and from Georgetown. I was more or less 15 years in the Middle East um, on a startup for Georgetown's University in Qatar, and I took two years leave of absence and was the chancellor of the American University of Iraq in Sulaymaniyah, Kurdistan. Oh, wow. Uh, but I also uh, I work very closely now with Bob Woodson of the Woodson Center, mm. and uh, I'm also a senior fellow at the Common Sense Society. I'm off to Hungary, actually, in a few days oh, to wow. give lectures, uh, trying to find the center. I'm finding that both in America and in Europe, the center is not holding, mm. and we're moving in, in directions that the left is very pleased about and the far right is pleased about, and I'm, I'm pleased about neither option. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we want to jump into that. So Georgetown, I have a uh, an old friend that uh, I th- you might know. His name was uh, Dallas Jones. I don't know if that name rings a bell. He had he had worked for the CIA for a long time and then went over to Georgetown to, to teach. So he might be in a part of the academy that you're not connected to at all. But School anyway, of Foreign Service, perhaps. Or- yeah, it could be. Could be. Yeah. I knew his. I, I was the pastor to his father and his mother for years on Cape Cod. Really, really fine folks. But anyway, that's off subject. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's uh, let's dive into identity politics. So you've got a book that's recently recently been published. Uh, I had the uh, pleasure of listening to a talk that you delivered at the Touchstone Conference in Chicago last year, and. Um, your video essay uh, at First Things uh, is really great. We're going to link that in the show notes. But uh, why don't you just kind of give us a quick, you know, elevator speech on the subject of the of the book and the talks? And there's going to be plenty for us to talk about. <laughs> sure, the book is actually about three things. Um, the first is identity politics, which I take to be the most immediate threat. But but I'm also concerned with uh, bipolarity, uh, which I take to be a social problem much more than a brain chemistry problem. Mm. And also uh, the third part, which I think will actually have the most legs, is what I call – it's about what I call substitutism. It's supplements being turned into substitutes. Plato and Rousseau saw this a long time ago. It's not on our radar, but my view is that that is a global pathology affecting every nation, citizens of every nation, and it's neither left nor right. Uh, so it's really, it's three illnesses. And I, because I teach political philosophy, I have to be concerned with the problem of human health. And so <clears throat> I'm trying to point out the illness and to indicate where health might lie. If you'd like, I can say more about, about identity politics. Um, yeah. I, I am a Tocqueville scholar. Uh, but I also got half of my training at the University of Chicago Divinity School. Oh, wow. And so uh, I know religious impulse when I see one. And identity politics struck me as, as not, not emerging out of Marxism. This is the huge debate I yeah. have with conservatives. They want to say this is cultural Marxism, the long, slow march through the institutions, but it's not. It's a, it's a very rapid march through the institutions. And so I see this as, as not Marx. Uh, identity politics it can be traced, I think, to, to Nietzsche, the postmodern movement. It's not Marxist, it's postmodern. But also there's a theological component of this that I think is, I'll say distinctly American, uh, but it happens to show up in Protestant countries in Northern Europe as well. So I'm going to say it's a Protestant problem. Hmm. And you know, the short version is that identity politics is a Christian heresy. <clears throat> and unless the churches get their act together, 
it will really run roughshod over everything we've created. Hmm. Yeah, that let's let that's really a, a, a significant insight. Um, so, I think perhaps um, your background in political philosophy, yeah, as opposed to political science, it might be something worth dis- t- discussing. The distinction between the two, I think, sometimes people think of them as synonymous, but. Uh, the, the the willingness to to consider kind of metaphysical questions as actually having political implications yeah. <laughs> is something you don't find in like political science. Um, so this insight that you know you've talked about related to guilt uh, that there is just this stain. Certainly, that sounds very uh, you know Augustinian and uh, Protestant. Yeah. That's maybe our gift to the world as Protestants is just guilt (laughs) we know how to make people feel guilty like no one does (laughs) well actually i i i I can think of of some other groups that are proverbially good at guilt too but um, uh, you have to remember irma bombeck refers to guilt as the gift that keeps on giving (laughs) <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and I remember she, she, she was Catholic. <laughs> so you have the the you know perpetual guilt. Uh, what was that? The sisters are perpetual. I, right. I, I can't remember it from from uh, Garrison Keillor, if I remember. <laughs> but anyway, Lutheran. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. right, right. So let, let's dive into that a little bit. So how does this carry over, uh, Joshua? I mean, uh, a lot of folks think because, you know, hey, in America, it's separation of church and state. These things are almost like emetically sealed off from each other. How could this possibly be a religious phenomenon? Yeah. Well, let me let me take uh, take a stab at, uh, <clears throat> at addressing something you said just a moment before that, which is, political science, political uh, philosophy, uh, and, and what I take the, to be the task of political philosophy. So I was in the, the social sciences proper. I was studying regression analysis, and it just became clear to me that you could say something very accurate about something very small and probably irrelevant, but, but literally nothing about the important issues of our lives. And so I left the social sciences and went to Chicago and uh, and, and studied political philosophy. And, and while I am not a Straussian, uh, I, I do think that we owe Leo Strauss and Hannah Arendt and any number of others an extraordinary debt because they they effectively invent the field of political theory. I mean, where, was the study of these books around before? Of course. But what they thought important to do was to connect the canon with the crisis of our times. Mm-hmm. There was a, a method of correlation, to use Tillich's words, Hmm. Uh, and, and what's happened over the last 50 years, <clears throat> 70 years, is that that insight has been lost. Yeah. And political theory has more and more become, I say this without intending disrespect, a kind of library science where we're looking at the endless secondary and now tertiary arguments yeah. and losing sight of our object, which is to connect events with, with great books. And so... I, I, I saw identity politics emerging. I, I don't know exactly when to date it, but I see it as, uh, as a, as a co- emerging as a consequence of the collapse, I'll say of the mainline churches. I can't speak for, for Catholicism, though I suspect the same thing happened there. Uh, I mean, Niebuhr saw this, of course, uh, in all of his writings. He saw that, that the idea of original sin was was just dissipating. And, and it's, it's staggering to me that it, that it began to fall away uh, because he's writing during World War II, which is the greatest <laughs> confirmation one can possibly imagine. Uh, but uh, but what, it, what occurred to me was that uh, <clears throat> maybe it's the Vietnam War, I don't know. I mean, people like John Rawls lost their faith earlier after World War II, so it's not just the Vietnam War. But in that period in the 60s, I don't have to tell you this, that the mainline churches lost their way. Uh, they, nobody wanted to talk about original sin. <clears throat> and if it is the case that what we hear about Adam is right, namely that there is a transgression that we inherit, that we know we inherit, uh, even if we evade it, if that's true, then when the churches cease to attend to that fundamental insight— uh, there will be a way found to talk mm. about it outside the churches. And so mm. my argument is that identity politics 
gives the kind of moral economy <clears throat> uh, to think through the problem of stain and atonement that the churches no longer offer because the churches only want to offer one nodal point, namely the God of love, but not mm -hmm. the God of judgment. And mm -hmm. so guilt, we can talk about guilt. It's probably more theologically accurate to talk about sin and how we respond to it. But what's happened with identity politics is we have, you heard the phrase, a, a new religious awakening, an awakening. I don't All like right. the phrase. It's cute, uh, but, but it doesn't quite grasp theologically what's, what's happened. But what we have now is a desperate search for, for atonement and mm. for a way to think through stain and transgression. And as I say in the book, I think every day in America, many times a day, most Americans are, uh, are, are practicing Jews uh, practicing the Passover ritual. Uh, right. What we do is we paint the, the blood of innocence on our on our the lintel of our door, whether it's Black Lives Matter or we stand with Ukraine or this house believes in love or whatever it happens to be. And all those things can be can be can be worthwhile. We can talk about race specifically later. Uh, but but I think the motivation for doing it is so that social death cancellation will pass you by. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. There's an astounding amount of energy that's being put into this as opposed to what I think we should be doing, which is building a world around citizen competence, building a world together in face-to-face -face relations. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you. I think uh, Matthew B. Crawford, if you're familiar with his work, uh, yes. gets into citizen competence. And, and I think it's a – I agree that's where we need to focus. So, Tom, I, I could tell you're about to ask something. Well, well, I think from from the field of of teaching theology, and it kind of when it showed up in my my radar when I was uh, doing my doctoral work, I was actually writing on Karl Barth and in, in the kind of confessional oh, wow. resistance to kind of uh, you know horrific thinking, um, and the church is going along with it. And I think it really opened my eyes when there was this kind of online. Um, blog dealing with current theological issues. And for the first time, I saw one basically say, can I read Karl Barth in good conscience? In other words, he is a white European. Yeah. And so everything he did to try to address the issue of evil sin judgment in light of the horrific history of, you know, of what he was, you know, bound up with, got whitewashed and it all became was he on the guilt or innocent side basically of this new divide and, and we're seeing it. i'm seeing it over and over again in my students and in the churches that they're a part of is these splits no longer is it about your kind of redemption in christ and new life and like i think you mentioned one time building on this mixed kind of history yeah. um and it becomes either or and divided and even the church no longer, you know, the atonement classically understood is no longer governing that, that conversation. Yeah. So one of the things I point out uh, to my students is that the, the categories that identity politics uses are not monovalent. I mean, white is really an extraordinary category. There is no such thing as white. There's, there's Germans, there's Scandinavians. Yeah. Uh, it, there's no such thing actually as black. If you read Thomas Sowell, Three Black Histories, mm -hmm. and you go to Africa, you know that black is not a one. Mm -hmm. But the whole moral economy holds together on the basis of the monovalence of each identity category. Uh, as I said, people are desperately searching for a way to think through stain and transgression. And rather than thinking of it personally, uh, they're, they're looking for categories out there that they can name or they can invoke uh, so that the stain remains out there. Uh, you, I said this at the Touchstone Lecture, and I say this all the time. You know, the, the first real conversation we have in, the, in Genesis is one in which uh, Eve says, it wasn't me, the serpent made me do it. And Adam says, uh, the woman you gave me. So th there's this disposition right from the very beginning, which we, we have to suppose by virtue of it being in the very beginning is one of the deepest things, uh, to, to externalize uh, fault and stain. So this is eternally true. Uh, insofar as Christianity held sway in our hearts, we were able to understand that that disposition has to be fought. And that in point of fact, we, we, unless we are able to fight it properly, we can't get to atonement. So, uh, so what we see in identity politics is Adam and Eve acting up again. <clears throat> and, uh, and the way I put it, I put it more recently, though I don't think I put it this way in the book, 
Christianity is many things, but uh, but the three things that it has that that identity politics also has is the notion of irredeemable stain, the scapegoat, and the innocent victim. And the mm. Christian understanding is that this is a vertical relationship, so that there's one innocent victim who happens to be the scapegoat who takes away the sins of the world, and all of us are guilty of irredeemable stain. Identity politics takes this vertical relationship and turns it on its side. Yeah. And says, no, 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 there is no Christian, no, there is no atonement in Christ. There is no original sin. The sin is out there. And if we can just purge the stain that's out there, if we can wash it, wash it away, if we can get rid of the pollution, of course, this does spill into the green energy story too. If we can just get rid of the pollution, the world will be pure. And the, there are many difficulties with that. Uh, one, though, is that with Christ, there is one sufficient sacrifice, one sufficient scapegoat who takes away the sins of the world, and that's it. With identity politics, once you purge one group, uh, you still have the problem. And instead of looking within, which you didn't do with the first group, you're not likely to do it with the second group. And so you've got to find a second group and a third group. And this has to go <clears throat> excuse me, on and on and on ad infinitum. So that's why I say in the book, you know, I'm happy to talk about how the white heterosexual male for now is it. But, but you know, don't, don't clap your hands, women and, and black men who believe in the family. They're coming for you next. It's the, the internal logic of yeah, identity yeah, I, I politics. Think we, yeah, we can see it with the TERFs, you know, these uh, women who insist that they're you know, like J.K. Rowling. She yes. says, I'm a feminist. Uh, I just happen to believe that, you know, uh, the the term women should actually be limited to women, <laughs> yeah. and that makes her uh, public uh, enemy, uh, you know, number two, I guess. <laughs> yes. After us, and uh, you know, and it, and there's an an irony here. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, social conservatives like us are cons are accused of being is fascists. Uh, you know, that, that gets thrown at us a lot, but this obsession with purity is what the the nazis were also obsessed with uh racial purity and and if you remember in in hannah arendt's you know uh treatment of totalitarianism she noted something i when i read it i said i had no idea that was the case but she said the jews were first but they had already identified the groups they were going to go after next in other words the final solution wasn't final <laughs> or it yeah. was just phase one and right. and so this this connection you're making to Nietzsche, I think, is really, really, I think, something worth considering more and more. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I'd like to back up a bit. Um, I, when, when I've taught on this, I've argued for a long time that that uh, the identity politics, wokeness, whatever you want to call it, is a Christian heresy. Um, the hmm. way I approached it is they've got a faulty anthropology because they argue there's neither a universal anything that all people share, nor are you actually an individual. You're a product of your intersectional categories. Uh, yeah. They've got a faulty hamartiology, which is the doctrine of sin, in that they reduce sin to oppression, so only some people are sinners and others are innocent. Right. Then you get it, then from there you automatically have a defective soteriology, if you've got one at all. And then their eschatology seems to point to the idea that it's going to be eternal conflict between groups, which isn't yeah, much yeah. of a hope either. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Welcome to so, the to the kingdom. <laughs> so so what I've said, I think I say it once in the book, but I've said it a lot more lately. Uh, we practice biological eugenics. We people practice biological eugenics. It's a hundred years. I mean Hegel in 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 the phenomenology talks about uh, phrenology, the study of brain the head structure and so so this this flirtation with biological destiny uh, right. and and then by extension uh biological eugenics went on for 100 years this is this is something new this is spiritual eugenics hmm. this is a, a it's based on the the innocence or, or transgression of your identity category look the word equity does has nothing to do with equality I'm all for equality. Equity is getting even. Equity is yeah. settling scores. Yeah. So this is not about equality at all. It's a new mm. spiritual eugenics. And mm. of course, you know, if you want to press this theologically, some are saved and some are damned, uh, if you follow Calvin and Augustine. And so 
I, I think it's safe to say that that part carries over, that some are saved and some are damned and permanently damned. There's, there's nothing you can do beyond their free will. Yeah. Interestingly so enough, if you actually go back to the use of equity in social justice theory, um, equity had to do with the distribution of the goods of society in proportion to your contribution. Right. So what they've That's done is Julian, they've yeah. taken the word equity, which is a good word. They've redefined it out of all recognition of what it was. And they're right. relying on the fact that it sounds good even though it doesn't mean what it originally meant. Uh, that's a tool yeah. that's been used by Rousseau uh, with the word uh, freedom. It's, it's actually a tool that all propagandists and advertisers use. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, I have it's a, a good good problem. I have a, a, a you know, kind of, you know, th this will come <laughs> from my, my, my previous work with Bart, is just the, the way in which alarms sort of went off even in theological circles and churches that something wrong was happening. But I don't think a lot of people figured this stuff would go but so far, and it did. And I remember when I was first hearing some of these ideas in university, especially the postmodern Nietzsche and stuff, I just, I just never thought outside of our kind of academic circles people were really going to buy into this. Well, now I've lived long enough to see that people really do buy into it. Yeah. When you're talking about addressing it, which your, your book, you know, really sets out some, some fascinating steps of, of trying to come to grips with this in, in, in significant ways. But, but you also mentioned, I think, the sobering reality that if this continues, what? Uh, I think they really mean it when they mean purging. They really mean it when they yeah. mean scapegoat. And this we need to take as seriously as what they meant in Nazi Germany when they meant, you know, the one, the, the filth, the vile one, the one who they were putting these tags onto. So this is absolutely right. And this is part of my frustration with conservatives because – they pat me on the head and say, no, this is just a continuation of Marxism, and we, we've kind of dealt with it. We haven't completely won, but we can push it back. No, no, no. This is, this is a clearing operation. Yeah. And where it ultimately goes to is transhumanism. Because hmm. you, the, the idea is that the, the, the whole generative form, well, it's a, it's a carbon form. Let's start with that. That has a carbon footprint. There's, there's no spiritual presence whatsoever. And if there's too much carbon, we're just going to have to eliminate the excess carbon. I mean, this is really frightening. Hmm. But uh, it's moving towards trans transhumanism, and the transgender movement can be understood in many ways, but I think minimally it has to be understood as an attempt to, to move past generation. Now, now theologically, there's, there's the kernel of an insight here, which is yeah. that with the resurrected body, we're no longer involved in generation. It's not a generative body. And so one way of looking at the transgender movement uh, is that it, it fully it, it understands where we are to go, but misunderstands how we get there. It's through Christ's redemption that we get to the regenerated body. So we're, we're finding a shortcut uh, mm. to, to get past the generative form. Uh, that's my most generous reading of it. There's also Plato, too. Uh, you know, Plato's view... It's probably a little too Gnostic, but Plato's view is that well, in the opening passages of the Republic, the very opening passage, you have uh, Polymarchus, whose whose name means warlord, and they're they're down there in the in the Piraeus with a uh, practicing a festival of of regeneration, the moon goddess Bendis. So so the opening scene is masculine violence, war and slavery, and female fecundity. And therefore, the whole of the world of time is, is these two aspects. And of course, the task of the Republic is to turn away from the world of time to a world beyond the generative, beyond the violent. There, there too, one can see an aspiration in the left to get there. But just as Marxism was an attempt to shortcut the Christian eschatology, so yeah. too is identity politics an attempt to, to find a cheap shortcut. There are no cheap shortcuts. Yeah. And I think theologians could do well to point out the, the Christian aspects of this, and I say this often to students who are captivated by it, I say, listen, you're, you're, you're feasting on crumbs. Why don't you come to the feast? You're feasting yeah. on crumbs. Right. You, you know that there's something here, but, but you can't find it given the way you're thinking about it now. Well, that yeah. brings us, of course, to the failure of the churches to stay faithful to the gospel. Um, when you think about 
work of uh, Niebuhr. And I mean, he was all about original sin. And uh, he had uh, about as much social cachet a, a public intellectual could hope for. Uh, I remember, in fact, when I was at Harvard, I, I, I studied under uh, Ralph Potter, who was his, uh, his teaching assistant. So I knew him, knew him well, and he showed uh, me one time uh, the obituary in the New York Times. Uh, it was like two pages, two yeah. full pages about this guy, and he yeah. wasn't able to make a dent <laughs> in, <laughs> yeah. in the waywardness of, of the main line. Uh, what, what, can, what can we possibly hope for? Uh, uh, have you thought about any like program to <laughs> save I, United Methodism or anything? <laughs> actually, before we get there, it might be worth noting why he couldn't make a dent. And that's because they were busy fighting the fundamentalists. And who wants to be like a backwater fundamentalist talking about hell, talking about judgment and all of those kinds of things? That just makes you sound like a hick. They were yeah. too sophisticated to listen. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I love Niebuhr for his emphasis on the problem of sin. It's just not clear to me that his overall framework allows us yeah. to get to where we need to go. Yeah. So on, on the matter of of how we how this gets turned around, I mean, I, I said it cryptically a minute ago. I think what we have to do is is ask those who are practicing practitioners of this. You know, when you go to sleep at night after you've canceled somebody, are you still haunted by guilt? Hmm. And my argument is there there's no external purgation mechanism that, that you can you can employ that will will allow you to sleep at night. There always has to be someone else. And as I say in the book, this could go on for centuries, group after group after group. And at some point, uh, people are going to wake up and say, we're, we're looking in the wrong place. Another way to put this is you run out of scapegoats. And so mm-hmm. one, way, one way of thinking also about this is that, you know, the Salem witch trials did die down. Well, why did they die down? They died down because they ran out of scapegoats, obvious scapegoats. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the matter of, uh, I mentioned black heterosexual males. I hate these categories, but but I tell Bob Woodson, uh, we talk about this all the time. I, I tell him that I think black America has more moral authority today than it did during the 60s because what's happened is that the wound of black America uh, has been appropriated uh, first by feminists, then by gays and lesbians, and now by the transgendered. And so they'll they'll call transgender people will call those who don't believe in them bigots. Well, that no, no, that's not right. That pertains to race. Uh, and so I think Black America alone could put a stop to this tomorrow if they said, "Look, whatever you can you can talk about your issues with the rest of the country, but you can't use our wound because the whole of it, the whole of identity politics." Uh, rests on the fundamental claim that this, this that racism is is inscribed in the very structure of reality, and politically, one of the downsides of that is if it's systematic, then then and here I'm invoking a Tocquevillian point. Then you can't help yourself, your family can't help you, your local community can't help you, your uh, your friends can't help you. You either despair or look to the powerful state, and of course the political project of this is to is to more deeply empower the state to destroy those who have a traditional view of the church and of the mediating institutions. And as Tocqueville said in 1835 in Democracy in America, uh, the, the fastest way to bring about the kinder, gentler despotism at the end of history is to destroy the mediating structures. A tyrant will forgive citizens for not loving him, provided they do not love each other. Yeah. Hannah Arendt was a Tocqueville scholar, and the origins of totalitarianism are deeply indebted to Tocqueville's analysis in the 1830s. Yeah, I think that's uh, a, a sobering thought. It, it, it also belies certain just kind of things that we can just know uh, actually with social science. Um, those uh, black families where the father is present are actually doing pretty good. Um, and if, if, if a father is, you know, I, 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 I see this over the course of my life, uh, have many uh, African-American friends and in each case um, where you know the the man has been a faithful uh, and a and virtuous father uh, the kids have come out great 
Yeah. Uh, they've gone on to do great things and, and become, you know, productive citizens. So we we have we have just plenty of social data, but nobody wants to think too deeply about it and its implications. It's it's almost as though our the ideologies are are blinding us to just home truths. So I gave a lecture last Wednesday night um, uh, on part of the book, but we did get to talking about race. And I said the most idiotic thing that conservatives have been doing now for at least a generation, more really, is, is to say, no, America is a colorblind society and we don't want to talk about it. Uh, if, you, if you look at the successes, you just mentioned it. If you, if you look at the successes in black America, they occur because of families being intact, families going to churches, uh, having local small businesses, all the Tocquevillian virtues that he saw were necessary for American thriving are there in the black community. And I will go further. When the state was against black America, not least after the Civil War, the way blacks survived was to, f- to double down on these mediating institutions. Black mm-hmm. America is Tocquevillian. Yeah. And, and conservatives have, on the one hand, cited Tocqueville, but not really fully understood the implications of this. I think the argument conservatives have to make is far from identity politics being the, the proper format to defend the, or to sharpen focus on black America, it only sharpens focus on, on, a, on that swath that has effectively been uh, disempowered through the great society programs, which ripped away the mediating institutions, led to higher out of wedlock birth rates, no fathers, et cetera. So that what conservatives should do is, is embrace what's happened within the black community after the Civil War uh, and, and to say, look, this is exactly what Tocqueville saw. Uh, we need to do everything we can to empower families, to empower churches. This is Martin Luther King's version. He never in his wildest dreams thought that the state should step in and sub- supple- or substitute for those mediating institutions. His view was the family and the church first and the government can be a supplement to, to those mediating institutions, but not a substitute for it. This is this distinction between supplements and substitutes. And I think that's, that's an important arena in which we can make that distinction uh, and make it well so that we can understand that 30% of black America is doing really quite well by being Tocquevillian Americans. Right, right. So when it gets to this sort of program moving forward, um, you mentioned something in your you know, a series of things in your video essay uh, for first first things that I thought were really helpful. Can you mind? Would you mind kind of going over those because I think we're touching on that now. Um, you're going to have to remind me what I said because I don't really <laughs> <That's> remember. <laughs> Actually, Chris, if I may, before we get there, sure. it might be worth uh, taking a look at the problem on the opposite side. You know, we've been we've been talking about the identity politics on the left. We haven't really talked much about the hard right. And I think yeah. that, that that's one of these things that, that should probably be, be brought out, too. We don't want to just focus yeah. on, on the one problem because the other is very real and it does impinge on the Christian community. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's get into it. Completely agree. So uh, the, there's two versions of my book out there. This, the second one obviously has a new preface. And in that preface, I sound the alarm. Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan famously said, I, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. And, and that roughly happened to me at roughly the same time, early 80s. This was before. But, uh, but, but now I find that the conservative movement, which, which really needs to be unified uh, in order to push back against identity politics, is now flirting with some very, very pernicious ideas. Mm. Uh, and I, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say something that Brian Garston said. Brian Garston is, I think, one of the leading political theorists up at Yale. And it, there was a conference maybe a year and a half ago, and at one point he said, can somebody in the audience help me understand this? Why are all my best students flirting with pre-modern integralism and post-modern Nietzscheanism? Mm-hmm. Now, let's describe both. Uh, yeah. And I don't want to attribute names because I'm not sure if I have them right, but, but there is a group of Catholics mm-hmm. who are done with the American project. 
mm-hmm. uh, believe that it's uh, that it was flawed from the very outset, and that it can't be redeemed, and therefore we have to go back to some sort of common good uh, idea um, <clears throat> that we had in the Middle Ages. Uh, so they're looking for a pre-modern or pre-liberal uh, out. And then there's the, the postmodern out, which is the Nietzschean alt-right. And we have to be clear what the alt-right is about. It's not even clear that Nazi Germany was alt-right. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the second essay of Nietzsche's genealogy, which is written you know, near, near the end of his period of relative cogence, uh, he, he says, look, there's, there's two ways that you can have a tomorrow. One is the Christian way, which is you recognize your guilt and and the the burden of it accumulates to the point or uh, until such time as as Christ lifts it from you uh, and and so Christians can have a tomorrow notwithstanding the burden of guilt that they have and that is the formula for Christians to have a tomorrow behold I make all things new and I recognize it's a slightly different context but but that is the idea uh, and but he said God is dead and so, uh, we, we have to have a new way forward. And the new way forward, he says in the second essay, is we must forget. Meaning yeah. the, the way we go forward is not by remembering our guilt, but by forgetting it. And so a whole generation of largely men, largely white guys, who have been told the whole of their life that they are irredeemably stained, that they're guilty of a crime they themselves did not commit, but by virtue yeah. of blood, blood lineage are responsible for, the whole of their lives, they have been told that they are guilty, and they are done. Yeah. And I see this in Europe. Uh, I yeah. see this in America. I see this in some aspects of the conservative movement. Here again, I want to be careful about naming names. But the the two great, the the two important new developments, largely by young, I'll say it, white guys who should have gotten PhDs and gotten positions teaching history or Western political philosophy in the university, but were shunted and, and <laughs> yeah. pushed out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they are angry and smart, and yeah. they have abandoned the, the whole project of what we could call constitutional liberalism, which is what I'm for. Yeah. Look, every problem we have, in my view, can be solved within the framework of the Constitution. You show me one that can't. I don't care how pernicious. It can all be solved within the framework of the Constitution. Uh, but, but a whole generation of young guys largely has said no. And so precisely at the moment when we all need to gather together, uh, to push back against the new left, because there are members of the old left who know that this is a problem too. I grew up as a member of the old left. There are guys my age right. and older who are still yeah. Democrats, and I say to them, "Don't you see they're coming for you next?" And they say, oh, "No, no, no, it's still civil rights." I say, "No, it's not civil rights." <laughs> Martin Luther right. King wanted to read Shakespeare. That's not what these guys want to do. That's right. That's right. It's, it's very different. So, so we have a real threat to be sure, uh, and. Uh, it, it's so the left is is careening into identity politics, which which will destroy everything uh, until we literally purify the earth of of human kind, and the right is is dreaming of a reenchanted world that's largely Catholic or moving to postmodern Nietzscheanism, which seeks to completely eradicate guilt. Now I say to that. I'm in a way thankful that the left is at least using Christian categories: irredeemable stain. Innocent victim, uh, the scapegoat. Hey, let's talk about it. Let's talk about those categories. I would be more worried by a left that didn't use those categories. Uh, in a way, that's the alt right. So, so it, it's a mess all the way around. So, to return to what I said a minute ago, so the Democratic Party didn't leave me, or I didn't leave the Democratic Party. It left me. I, I feel like the conservative movement at this point. There's still a few of us around who want to hold on to the middle, but the young energy is elsewhere, and it's a big problem. Yeah, it's is this something? I mean, I noticed coming through it and having have confronted all those frustrations myself, not having had classic Christian orientation, I could clearly see the anger, frustration, and 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 likewise. I mean, just reading Nietzsche, I mean, you 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 can figure in reading that setup that the flip side of the you know the trying to use guilt to bring down the strong man is going to end up with with someone saying eventually you know what the guilt's not going to work on me now it's dog eat dog and i'm a bigger dog and i think when when that happens uh it is scary and i think when our show started out we were trying 
we saw that thread happening and wanted to reorient a lot of that, you know, that world to, to a richer set of Christian resources than going down those paths because they're real too. And they're, they're kind of what is there, you know, you talk about invisible things for a lot of people, that world is invisible right now, but it, it will show its head. Oh, and yeah. when it yeah. does, it's not going to be pretty. No, yeah, I, I very much agree. Yeah, I've argued that the uh, uh, wokeness in schools is a formula for creating white nationalists. Yes. And, yeah. and I, I don't understand why they don't see that. It seems so patently obvious to me. So their answer in response is when they become white nationalists, their response is, see, they were white nationalists yeah. all along. Now, now they're just yeah. showing what they always were. But yeah. I completely agree with you. It is. Bob Woodson has received notes from white guys who, who you know, who, who had to go through humiliation of DEI training, et cetera. And and he, one one young guy said, "Look, I, I'm I can't live this way anymore. I'm just going to go surround myself with white people. I'm tired of being told I'm a racist." Now, you, you can it's certainly understandable, it, not commendable, but certainly understandable that we're starting to get this self separation. When race and racial purity becomes the only thing that matters, can I say one thing about um, Nietzsche and I and and the religious dimensions of identity politics? Yeah. Because yeah. there's there's actually two things going on here. So Nietzsche brings us the, the the category of identity. I mean, he doesn't use the word so much, but here's what he's trying to do, and you can see this in his first work, which is the Birth of Tragedy. So mm -hmm. Nietzsche's critique is that Western man has lost. What is, what is the source of animation for building a civilization, which is the subterranean upwelling of what Freud would later call the id. Mm -hmm. And so he says things like consciousness, man's weakest and most fallible organ. Or, and here's a beautiful, beautiful passage from uh, The Birth of Tragedy, music endures the lyrics. Hmm. It's an astounding passage because what he's hmm. saying is that there's something that's pre-linguistic, yeah. which is deepest about us. And so the identity claim that's being made today comes right out of Nietzsche, and it takes the form, I am a this, it's pre-linguistic, it's pre-rational, therefore yeah. you can't argue me out of it. Yes. Okay, this is my yeah. identity. Here yeah. I stand, sacrosanct, inviolable. The condition under which we will engage is that you recognize the thing that language can't get at, but which yeah. I can affirm because it upwells from it. Okay, that's huh. the identity part. But that's not the purity and stain part. What yeah. happens when you get when you bring that to America? So that was in Europe. They were talking about identity, Foucault, Derrida, yeah. 60s, 70s, and 80s. But they didn't get the purity and stain part. That's something we added on. So you take this idea of a sacrosanct pre-linguistic identity, and then you map it on to an intersectional uh, uh, purity score, spiritual purity score. And that's, that's the full of identity politics. It's, wow. it's not just the identity category. It's invoke or supplementing or super adding the theological categories of purity and stain to it. Yeah. yeah so this is a, a rejection of the Lagos uh, in the yes. sense that there's, nothing uh, rational ordering the world that's reflected in our, our, our judgments. And that now there, there's been a number of people, there have been a number of people who've made a kind of connection to Gnosticism at, at this point. Did you see that? So, yes, uh, I certainly the transgender part, right? So mm -hmm. what, so, so imagine a world where we're all Adam and Eve, we're all stepping all over each other, involved in transgression and sin every moment, uh, and we have no we have no Lord's Prayer. We we have no atonement. We have no repentance. We have no forgiveness. Under those circumstances, the the, the mind searches for a way to to be lifted out of the the weight, uh, to, to be released from the burden of sin, and and the way you do that is to make the Gnostic move. Because so this is the metaverse, by the way. This is right yeah. that we, we have no bodies. Uh, we're going to live in a digital space. Um, all, all the transgressions that occur in high school and and you know in our in our common life, none of those are going to happen. Uh, we, we don't have. I think it's you only have waist up. Is that right or something like that? It's a sick world that we're trying to create, but we can understand why we're trying to create it because you now have several generations and ours included walking around with very little understanding of how one lifts the burden of sin. Yeah. Uh, and, and under those circumstances, 
it's not at all surprising to me that boys and girls are doing everything they can to turn away from, from generation because there, there's no more script for it, for starters. What is a man? What is a woman? What is a marriage? Yeah. It's, it's an absolute catastrophe for them. And the parents are abetting this by saying, well, honey, if you feel like a three on the scale of masculinity today, that's fine. And I've even encountered many mothers who say, I hope my son or daughter is gay or transgender. Why? Because that then lifts their burden. They're not. Right. These suburban mothers are no longer heteronormative. They're supporting. They're, they're doing gender-affirming yeah. gender care. It, it's yeah. just sick beyond belief. Yeah. Yeah. But you can understand why all of it happens because we don't any longer have a way of lifting the burden of sin. Now, if we weren't heirs to Adam and Eve, that's the third time I've said this, we, we wouldn't have a problem. But we are. Yeah, and as right. a consequence, we've yeah. we've renounced the Christian counterpoint to Adam and Eve, but we still have Adam and Eve. Yes. So yeah. it's a disaster. Yeah. So a couple couple of thoughts come to mind here, quick. Uh, uh, one is just uh, the practical sort of long term outcome of some of these things, just at a pretty rudimentary level, like fewer kids. Uh, is a problem. <laughs> yeah. In other words, so so this this turning away from the generative uh, in the name of um, not wanting to carry forward structural racism or to save the planet, you know, all that kind of stuff. Eventually, you end up in a situation like you see in Japan or Italy that's only going to accelerate and get worse and worse and worse and create but, conditions in which uh, this thing just kind of consumes itself. But Chris, remember... People are the problem. And if we right. follow through on the logic <laughs> of this, you've got to find more and more and more scapegoats until, as Joshua said, until no one is left. <laughs> yeah, and, but I, but that, I guess that's what I'm getting at. It's, and, it's, 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 that's actually is, in the headlights. <laughs> there is actually a human extinction movement among some radical greens. Yeah. Yeah. And and I guess I, the thing I'm thinking about, so I, I have a church that's very pronatal. I mean, I've got an elder with 13 kids, another with 12, another with nine. You know, we've got a lot of little people. A median age of my church is like 14. <laughs> and and wow. we, we we just kind of really stick out. And at the same time, we're, it's a very sophisticated bunch, entrepreneurs, executive types, and stuff like that. Uh, but we we kind of look at the situation sort of up and it's just sort of unfolding around us and saying the world is ours if we just kind of st <laughs> just stay on point. <laughs> so the, the parallel is Israel. So I, I've been saying for a very long time that that Israel can't make up its mind whether it's Jerusalem or Tel Aviv. And yeah. <laughs> Tel Aviv has the cosmopolitans. It's not it's not a simple analogy, but. Tel Aviv has largely the cosmopolitans, mm -hmm. and Jerusalem has the Orthodox who are having eight, nine, ten kids. And the, the current constitutional crisis has everything to do with the shifting demographic. And, and I think you're right. Those who adhere to natality uh, are, are well-bounded within Christian theology and, as you point out, are entrepreneurs and are building the world in stewardship. They will inherit the earth. Yeah. 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 Now, another thing that's fascinating is when you think about, say, the scriptures or even mythology, um, what you have is really mixed characters. You know, you think about even someone, you know, as uh, exemplary as Abraham. The guy had some bad days. <laughs> and we and we have a, a record of those bad days. And his heirs have faithfully remembered both his good points and his bad points. And that to me is it demonstrates maturity for one thing. Uh, just okay, this is this is what it means to be a human being. This is what it means to have ancestors. Uh, is there any hope that we as a, in, in a as a country can demonstrate the same level of maturity and say, yeah, Thomas Jefferson, slaveholder, Thomas Jefferson, great statesman, you know, it, or do we have to like just say, okay, all statues go, you know, yeah. we just need. So I don't know if you remember the 1619 project and mm -hmm. the response to it. So uh, the, the claim of Hannah Nicole Jones was that America is systemically racist. So there's a stain right from the outset. Uh, and what was interesting was that much of the conservative response said, no, 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 America's pure. Now, in my view, 
both are both miss the mark or or both are practicing the same uh, position which is that the thing that's impure has to go hmm. and i think you know if you to your point about the, the long history of the old in the old testament uh the question is 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 suffering is sin the final word is good look what we're asking is good is good friday the final word or is easter sunday the final word and the problem is that christians want to practice the good sunday thing and forget about the 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 easter the friday uh but but what we have to understand is that the whole of human history is barbarism. I start my, I've got a hundred student lecture on history of Western political philosophy. And the very first day when I introduce that opening scene of the Republic, I say, there's not one of you who wasn't at some point in your family lineage an enslaver or enslaved, uh, mm -hmm. in, in, involved in rape and pillage, a victim of rape and pillage. There's not one of you in this room. Mm. So I, I want our young people to understand the brokenness of history. And so in that sense, I'm not troubled by the left's pointing out again and again that it's, yeah. that it's worse than we're told. And my view is, no, it's even worse than you think it is. <laughs> yeah. it, because it's original <laughs> sin, it's a thousand right. times worse. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go double on, on you. So let's not argue, let's not pretend that you're telling me something I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I'm saying it's worse than you know. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and now what? And yeah. so we, what we have to do is have a stomach for the brokenness of man. It's only when we yeah. become tender-hearted Christians who, who don't yeah. want to talk about that, that, yeah. that we get the deer in the headlights look when we're accused of being this, that, or the other. Racism has nothing on original sin. That's we have right. to be really clear about this. Yeah. So, so instead, of, instead of shirking away, which is what we've done for yeah. a, a generation or two from the ugliness of human life, we say, yup. And, and that is not the final word. And here yeah. Nietzsche, strangely, you know, he sometimes gets it very right. Um, it, there's a place in what's called the gay science, a misunderstood title, but it, it, a place in yeah. which he announces the myth of the eternal return. Yeah. And the myth of the eternal return is, it, it's, it's, well, it's in response to what he saw in Europe, which was a Europe that started to see suffering as an argument against life. You see suffering, then the world, you know, curse God and die. You've suffered, Job, curse God and die, right? Hmm. And so you see a whole civilization in the 19th century that's beginning to give up. And so the myth of the eternal return is roughly this. I would take every suffering that has ever occurred on the planet, and I would take it over and over again an infinite number of times, and still I would say life is not repudiated. Hmm. Now, that's a profoundly Christian yeah, understanding. Yeah. So I yeah. think what we have to do is is, way, is recognize that the ugliness, and no, come back at those who say life is ugly and say, no, it's even uglier than you think. Yeah. And then the question is, if it's uglier than you think, and it, it's so ugly, in fact, that your social justice scheme, your Marxist scheme, your feminist scheme can't redeem us, it's because it's a yeah. thousand times worse than what you think, then I think we can point yeah. them back to the gospel and yeah. to the one sufficient sacrifice. But we have to, instead of saying, no, we have to say, come on, it's actually yeah. worse, I'm with yeah. you, now let me show you the answer to this problem. Yeah. yeah. The, the Calvinist should have kept that one going. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but, have, but have, have they? That's the, that's the thing. We, we, we look right. around our own uh, communion, and we, we wonder, why uh, have you guys gotten off <laughs> uh, into these things that uh, you've been describing, uh, Joshua. Yeah, actually, yeah. backing up a bit, when you were talking about identity politics starting in Europe and then we added the irredeemable stain and scapegoat to it, I found myself wondering if that was vestigial Puritanism. Yes, uh -huh, I, think, right. I think it is. So uh, what, there are many reasons I love Tocqueville, but one of them, is that he has this strong version of what social scientists call path dependency, so that the patterns established at the outset redound into the future, whether you know it or not. And mm -hmm. so I tell my students, for example, that John Muir, the first environmentalist, was the son of a, Cal a Calvinist minister. Category mm -hmm. of purity and stain now applied to nature. 
So, so I do think that that lurking in, let's call it the American character, which of course you're not supposed to talk about, but I think lurking in the American character is this deep understanding of purity and stain. That's why I say mm-hmm. to my friends who want to say this is Marxism, I, I say, no, no, you've misunderstood America. Uh, the, the category of, for Marx is, is class. And as Lewis Hartz pointed out in the monumental work called The Liberal Tradition in America, 1955, at the depths of the Cold War, he said, contrary to what Marxism claims, which is that it's universal, Americans will never adopt Marxism because its category is not class in the way that Europe has class. We have wealthy and poor, but you go to Europe and, and you've got, you know, you've got generations of people who speak a certain way because they're a member of a certain class. Yeah. We don't have that in America. And so, uh, so Marxism could never take hold in America. But what we have is this Puritan understanding of stain and impurity and guilt. And that's why identity politics has, has completely overrun every institution, every corporation in America in the space of five or ten years. Now, was it always hanging around? Yeah, but when you've got a spiritual crisis and you're trying to figure out the meaning of stain and guilt and the churches aren't available, well, you're going to glom onto something that's imp- simple. Uh, and, and, and you can become a, 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 lay, a lay person in that church. And that you've got the Pew Charitable Trust poll on the nuns. They, they got it all wrong. We're the most religious country in the world still. It's yeah. just we're not doing our religion in church. We're doing it in, in world <laughs> yeah. politics. Yeah, yeah I've, 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 I've observed that it seems as though uh, no country goes apostate like a reformed country. <laughs> yeah. we, we we have a way of going apostate that's just really ugly. Uh, yeah. Just both uh, when it comes to uh, licentiousness and these other things. Yeah. Well, the Netherlands too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 They've, they've lost their way. Yeah. 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 What you're saying is that we're good at total depravity. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And, well, and exploiting it. But um, one of the things you mentioned in your book, you talk about the kind of the visible economy and the in, invisible uh, economy, which I think is very brilliant way to categorizing and, yeah. and helping unpack a lot of dimensions to this. And, and one of the things I caught, I remember, I think it was around the time of, I, I think it was Trump's second run for for election the the one where all the heat and the woke was i I think just burning on every corner and i remember that that hearing over and over again look we're doing great the economy is great it was all about those visible manifestations of material wealth and i said this is going to be a problem you know and not only is it that you know man can't live by bread alone but those moral existential spiritual um, anxieties that are all over the culture when they are just either talked down to or not addressed substantively, we're we're at a we're at a very that places us in a very vulnerable situation culturally and politically. So this is, in my view, the impotence of the conservative movement uh, from Reagan forward, because yes, it's been held together by a number of different factions the so-called fusion synthesis, but, but it's really two. One is the, the pillar of, let's call it capitalism, economic freedom, and the other is uh, tradition. And if you think of that in terms of debt, you've got then two, two ways of understanding debt. <clears throat> debt as money, so the moneyed economy, and by, by that account, we're just growing up a storm. Is Everything's great. And by the second account, the debt we owe our fathers, well, that's, that's different. And so you're always going to have tension in the conservative movement between the Burkeans, so to speak, and the Adam Smithians. <clears throat> mm. um, but what I'm arguing is that identity politics represents a deeper kind of debt. That, yeah. that is, it's way deeper, in fact, than what the moneyed economy recognizes and way deeper than the debt we owe our fathers. Uh, because... Because there's a stain here that our fathers can't, by re- returning to our fathers, can't eliminate. Hmm. This is, in a way, the problem. This is a problem within the the NatCon movement. I'm happy to talk with you about that because I'm I'm dear friends with Yoram Hazoni, yeah, and I'm actually yeah. helping to organize this. But but what, what what we have to understand is the conservatives will talk about the importance of tradition and, by extension, family values, and, and on the other hand, free markets. And what I'm saying is that the left has a thousand times deeper understanding of the problem of debt. Hmm. And unless there's a Christian awakening that can counter that and show that there's a deeper still understanding, 
mm. of debt. The conservative movement is utterly impotent, and they yeah. have been. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So do you think, though, you know, with NatCon, for example, you know, you noted, and I've observed it too, that there's, this seems to be like the PaleoCon moment. This is like our, like, you know, for the longest time, we were in a kind of the embarrassing part of the fusion. <laughs> you know, just stay over there, yeah. guys. Yeah, we'll, we'll throw you a bone on uh, an abortion every once in a while, but don't. Yeah. Don't try to take center stage. But, uh, you know, people like Klaus Wren and others have talked about how, uh, you know, this approach has totally failed. And now it's time for us to step forward. Do you see anything to encourage us uh, along that line? Well, so I'm going to tell you a story. So after the November election, when Trump was first elected, Yoram called together, I'm going to say 60, 70 people. Uh, in, in Glen Cove, New York. And it was the most amazing meeting because he had all these conservatives who, you know, I, I didn't know many of them, but I read their work. And, and to a man, they said something like this. Well, you know, I supported free market economics, but I was never really satisfied with it. I knew there was something more. Or, yeah, I supported the neocons, the war in Iraq, but, uh, you know, this foreign war stuff, not, not really a great idea. So what became clear was this was, this was a brand new moment in, in conservative ink. And while the left was saying, oh, my God, the awakening of, of uh, white nationalism, <laughs> I think a lot of conservatives said, no, 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 we, we've, now, we, we've now broken down the prison of free market conservatism and neoconism, and we can go forward now. And what happened was you had fertile conversations for the first time in three decades, since really the, the beginning of the Reagan administration. And that conversation continues under the auspice of NatCon. Uh, and Yoram is, is really the head of it uh, because he, he thinks that we have to live in a world of nations. And I think that is the Trump insight as well, however badly implemented. We live in a, a world of nations and Yoram caught that wind and can, continues to catch that wind. Now, but what's happened, and now we return to something we were talking about earlier, is you've had these other fractional movements, factional movements within the, the, the right, the, the integralists, the postmodernists. And to his credit, um, I think Yoram is slowly saying, look, you, you have a place at the table, but that's, that's not what we're going to do. There was a statement that I was involved in drafting with maybe a dozen other people a couple of years ago uh, where, we, where we gently said, look, there's limits to what – it's a big tent. And you can come visit, but you're not going to be part of it if you're going to do X, Y, and Z. So there's been, it's not purging, a, a kind of cleansing, a kind of disciplining action within this movement. Um, I have always cautioned Yoram and the conservatives because, and, and you said this, what, what happened, the, the mother load of this in terms of practical politics was the free market conservatives no longer had a veto, veto over the traditionalists. And, mm. and that is long overdue. Because if you make, you can be Marx or you can be Tocqueville or you can be Adam Smith. They all saw the same thing. If you make money the single measure, you will destroy everything that, that you need in the way of social capital. Yeah. And so conservatives are, at, I think, a theoretical moment that's actually very important, which is we want to support the middle class. We believe in commerce. However, money is not the single measure. And what remains to be worked through is how it is that you can both be committed to commerce and yet in such a way that you're not gutting your middle class and gutting your mediating institutions. And what that yeah. means first and foremost is that efficiency cannot be the highest good, which right. incidentally Tocqueville saw. Efficiency yeah. cannot be the highest good. And this was the, 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 the central claim of the Reagan administration. Efficiency is if, if your steel mill can't compete, then, you're, then Pittsburgh shuts down and you move to the southwest. Okay. So there's a lot to apologize there for. So the, so the neocons, or sorry, the, the natcons now I think largely are to the place where they recognize that you can't have the free market veto. But they have yet to solve the problem. And, and while they're feeling liberated because the free market veto is no longer in place, they have no way yet to address this hmm. problem of this spiritual economy that I'm talking yeah. about. Right. Now, Yoram will be the first to say – you Protestants, who are basically the, the largest majority culturally anyway, if you don't get your act together, your country is doomed. And I actually believe that. Yeah. yeah so uh, and, and Yoram is encouraging uh, young, young Protestants and not only young Protestants, but, but, you know, 
He does believe that unless the Puritans can get there, the Protestants can get their act together, by which I think he means uh, we, we have to return to a doctrine of original sin. If we don't get yeah. that together, identity yeah. politics will be our doctrine. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, I think, a, uh, a worthwhile note to end on. It's not a – it's a sobering note, uh, but I think, uh, you know, that's a good thing to do sometimes is end on a sobering note. Anyway, thanks a lot, Joshua. This has been a fun conversation. and My pleasure. It, is there obviously we'll put some links to the the book uh to your video um essay with first things is there any other way people maybe can keep up with you so uh i have teach a teach a lecture called facebook is death so i have no no social media presence but i do have an email address which is on the georgetown website and i'm okay. happy to talk with anyone Okay, well, we'll we'll, uh, we'll let people find that for themselves because we've got about 10,000 people who listen to us every week and it might overwhelm your email box. (laughs) 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 Anyway, uh, thanks again. And thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. We really appreciate your support. If you want to support us financially, you can do that through Patreon. uh, And there's a link in the show notes to that. If you just want to follow us, say, on social media, because we do have a social media presence, (laughs) you can do that on Twitter and other places. Anyway, thanks a lot, and bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy another of our podcasts, The Good Life Podcast featuring Matt Carpenter interviewing experts in their field about how their work contributes to the good life.